This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the final talk in this year's Boyer Lectures. I'm Geraldine Duke. We've all had a front row seat, very privileged indeed, listening to this year's lecture series, Shakespeare, Soul of the Age, written and presented by the one and only John Bell, whose name's synonymous with that of William Shakespeare. John's an acclaimed actor, theatre director and theatre manager, also starting the Bell Shakespeare Company in 1990 to ensure that the bard's words and performances were conveyed to schools across Australia and to new audiences. Throughout this series, we've all become students again, as John enlightens us about how the works of William Shakespeare some 400 years ago still resonate today if we would just listen. In his final lecture, John presents Imaginary Forces. People these days don't ask, what are you reading or what are you listening to, but what are you watching? I am one of the audio generation, one that grew up without television. Most of our entertainment and information came via radio. There was cinema, of course. Movies were very thrilling. But in a family like mine, cinema was something of a luxury, and we'd go to the pictures about once a fortnight. Most nights after tea, we'd settle around the big old-fashioned radio, which was always tuned to the ABC. The fair was eclectic and democratic. After the news at seven, you might get a natural history program or a travelogue, a BBC comedy or crime serial, a symphony concert, Jim Gussie's dance band, a play, classic or modern, a quiz show or parliament. ABC Radio was my introduction to Shakespeare, around the age of twelve. I recall the thrill that tingled my spine when Ron Hadrick, as Brutus, commenting on Julius Caesar's ambition, uttered the line, It is the bright day that brings forth the adder, and that craves wary walking. The radio play happened inside our heads. Apart from the occasional sound effect, all the focus was on the language and the flexibility of the actor's voice. This paid off well for Shakespeare, and our imaginations were constantly engaged. They were engaged by poetry, too. Back then, poetry loomed very large in the classroom. We studied the Romantics, the Augustans, the Edwardians, the Georgians, and half a dozen modern poets. We were blessed with an English teacher who read poetry to us in a sonorous, expressive voice which brought home the musicality of the verse as well as the intellectual content and he conducted us majestically in a verse-speaking choir as well. Poetry seems a lot less prevalent in the classroom today, and you have to search pretty hard in even a good bookshop for the poetry section. Another function of language is storytelling, human's oldest form of entertainment. In his book The Uses of Enchantment, Bruno Bettelheim suggests that reading, or better still, 
telling stories to a child is an important part of the child's emotional and psychological development, and creates a special bond between the storyteller and the listener. I wonder if the telling of bedtime stories is as prevalent as it used to be, or is it easier now to flick on the telly? Just asking. Television and cinema are, of course, the great storytelling machines of the 20th and 21st centuries, and hold us spellbound with imagery and soundscapes that can be terrifying, magical, wildly entertaining, and utterly transporting. As an audience, you don't have to bring anything to the party. The camera tells you where to look, and the soundtrack tells you what to feel. All you have to do is sit back and let it wash over you. It was different for Shakespeare's audience. They spoke of going to hear a play, as opposed to see a play. They were expecting to hear some pretty high-flown and entertaining language, and they were good listeners. They had to be. In the absence of other news outlets, and since many couldn't read, they had to be alert to information and official proclamations on which their lives might depend, just as a four-hour sermon might be their passport to salvation. And when you went to the theatre, you had to do more than just watch and listen. You had to help make the play. It couldn't happen without your active participation. In Henry V, an actor called Chorus walks onto an empty stage and beseeches the audience on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies. Think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hoofs in the receiving earth. For tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings. Later on, Chorus invites us to Suppose that you have seen the well-appointed king at Hampton Pier embark his royalty, and his brave fleet with silken streamers the young Phoebus fanning. Play with your fancies, and in them behold, upon the hempen tackle ship boys climbing. Hear the shrill whistle which doth order give to sounds confused. Behold the threatened sails, borne with the invisible and creeping wind, draw the huge vessels through the furrowed sea, breasting the lofty surge. Oh, do but think, you stand upon the rivage, and behold a city on the inconstant billows dancing. Work, work your thoughts, and therein see a siege. Behold the ordnance on their carriages, with fatal mouths, gaping on girded harfleur. Chorus demonstrates the premise on which Shakespeare's theatre was predicated. Spectators grouped around a bare platform in broad daylight, using their imaginary forces to transport them to wherever the magic of language would have them go. It reminds me of how, when I was a kid reading Treasure Island and Tom Sawyer, the pictures in my mind conjured by the words were much more vivid than the tepid illustrations that accompanied them. Shakespeare was not averse to technology, and his later plays moved indoors to theatres such as the Black Friars, which had candlelight and quite elaborate stage machinery, which Shakespeare exploited to the full. In the last act of Cymbeline, the stage direction reads, Jupiter descends in thunder and lightning, sitting upon an eagle. He throws a thunderbolt. The ghosts fall on their knees. But most of his earlier plays were performed on an open-air, empty stage in daylight from around 3 to 5 p.m. 
A lot of his descriptive writing is necessary to set the scene and tell us where we are, what time it is, and what the weather's like. What country, friends, is this? This is Illyria, lady. What wood is this before us? The wood of Burnham. I come to wive it wealthily in Padua. Well, this is the forest of Arden. What is this castle called that stands hard by? They call it Agincourt. But often Shakespeare goes beyond mere location naming. He allows himself descriptive writing that sets the tone of the scene, or even the mood of the entire play. How sweet the moonlight sleeps upon this bank! Look, love, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east! Night's candles are burnt out, and jocund day stands tiptoe on the misty mountain tops. Blow, winds, and crack your cheeks! Rage, blow, you cataracts and hurricanoes, spout till you have drenched our steeples, drowned the cocks. Each play has its own vocabulary, its own musicality, its own palette of colours. We can be eternally grateful that Shakespeare was limited to a bare empty stage for most of his career, else he might not have been inspired to write such riveting descriptive poetry, such intense establishing of atmosphere. Setting the play's location is one thing, but I'd like to suggest that Shakespeare's landscapes are about more than just scene painting. They are landscapes of the mind that make the character's behaviour not just plausible, but almost inevitable. These landscapes can be highly subjective, and sometimes exist only inside the characters' heads. Shakespeare made life hard for himself by setting so many of his plays at night-time. An actor walked onto the bare stage in broad daylight, carrying a torch or lantern, and the audience immediately knew they were watching a night-time scene, sometimes a very lengthy one. So that demanded a pretty big suspension of disbelief. The comedies are generally set in daylight and sunshine, as you like it, the comedy of errors, love's labours lost, the tempest. Much Ado About Nothing has one brief night scene, as does Twelfth Night, despite its title. But apart from A Midsummer Night's Dream, the bulk of comedy is sun-soaked. Nighttime is reserved for the tragedies. Why so? I guess we have to step back in time 400 years. Shakespeare's audience experienced night differently to the way we do. Once the sun went down, about 4pm in winter, that was it for the next 16 hours or so. Unless you were well off enough to buy candles, you sat in the dark or by the fireside without much to entertain you. That's when plots were hatched, witches scuttled around, and spirits walked abroad. You told each other ghost stories. In all of Shakespeare's tragedies, about half the play takes place at night. Think of the ghost scenes in Hamlet, the climactic play and closet scenes. Othello begins in the dark streets of Venice, and then shifts to Cyprus, where we have the nighttime scenes of Cassio's disgrace, Rodrigo's murder, and the final tragic scene in Desdemona's bedroom. The whole central section of King Lear takes place on a wild heath at night in the middle of an apocalyptic storm. And in Macbeth we have night after night of horrors, 
the murder of Duncan, the killing of Banquo, and the appearance of his ghost at Macbeth's coronation banquet, the witch's cavern, and finally the tormented sleepwalking of Lady Macbeth. Nighttime in Romeo and Juliet is alternatively amorous and deadly. So much of the play happens in the dark, the merry scene of Mercutio and the maskers, the Capulet ball and subsequent balcony scene, the ultimate love scene of all time. We are not to witness the only night Romeo and Juliet spend together, just the sunrise that tears them apart. But we have the fraught night scene of Juliet taking the friar's potion and the nightmare of the final scene of violence both outside and inside the tomb. When we first meet him, the brooding Romeo is accustomed to locking himself up from the sunlight and making himself an artificial night. Darkness can also be a landscape for amorous dreams, whether of Queen Mab or Romeo's joyful Mantuan dream of Juliet's kiss restoring him to life. Juliet summons the darkness. Come, gentle night. Come, loving, black-browed night. Give me my Romeo. Darkness is a symbol of fate in this tragedy of star-crossed lovers, and the stars are a constant presence. Two of the fairest stars in all the heaven, having some business to entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. Some consequence yet hanging in the stars. Take him and cut him out in little stars. Then I defy you, stars. Sunrise in Shakespeare generally heralds hope and renewal. But there is no sunrise at the end of Romeo and Juliet. The sun for sorrow will not show his head. Climate is another factor in assessing the play's psychological landscape. We tend to think of Romeo and Juliet as a hot play. Indeed, Shakespeare rather insists on it. Benvolio says, I pray thee, good Mercutio, let's retire. The day is hot, the Capulet's abroad, and if we meet we shall not scape a brawl for now in these hot days is the mad blood stirring. But when I played Paris for the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Greek director, Karolos Kuhn, had us all getting around muffled in heavy cloaks. Someone ventured to ask him, is it supposed to be hot in Verona? And Karolos replied, oh no, Verona's north of Athens, it's cold up there. To Shakespeare, an Englishman, Verona was hot. Geographical perspective can affect the storytelling. The psychological landscape of Macbeth is an extremely powerful one. If you take the action of the play and the character's behaviour out of context, they might seem implausible, even absurd. A victorious soldier returning home comes across three witches who predict that one day he will be king. He immediately writes to his wife and informs her that King Duncan is coming to stay the night. She says, fine, let's kill him after dinner and tomorrow you'll be king. We'll put the blame on his grooms and say they were put up to it by the king's sons. Macbeth hesitates a moment, then replies, Yes, that sounds like a good plan. Let's do it. Now any rational assessment will tell you it's a very bad plan. Hasty, reckless, not thought through. So why does it feel acceptable in the play? What is the psychological setting? Well, for one thing, the play happens mostly at night. Horrid night, the child of hell, as Henry V calls it. What else features in the landscape of Macbeth besides the dominance of darkness? 
For a start, we are told that we are in a wild and primitive terrain, in an age of barbarism, witchcraft and superstition. The play opens with thunder and lightning, and three witches who hover through the fog and filthy air. Then we meet a bleeding sergeant, who describes how Macbeth encountered the rebel MacDonald, unseamed him from the nave to the chaps, and fixed his head upon our battlements. Now we know what kind of play we're in for. Macbeth has a big and restless geographical landscape. Troops are brought from Norway and the Western Isles to fight the Scots at Forres and at Fife. Messengers gallop from one to the other with news of battles, and then to Inverness to herald Duncan's arrival. Later they will bring news that Malcolm has fled to England and Macduff to Fife. We end up at Macbeth's castle at Dunsinane, watching Burnham Wood advancing on him. Scenes in between are set on a blasted heath, a witch's cavern, and a gloomy wood where Banquo is murdered. The only respite from the gloom is a brief paradisal vision of England, where the saintly King Edward cures people of a malady called the evil, and sundry blessings hang about his throne that speak him full of grace. This little slice of sunlight, hope and redemption is squeezed in between the slaughter of Macduff's family and the sleepwalking madness of Lady Macbeth. To complement the barrenness of Macbeth's landscape, it is inhabited by a strange and ghoulish bestiary. The witches' familiars, Grey Malkin the Cat and Paddock the Toad, introduce us to the obscure bird, a rat without a tail, the raven who croaks himself hoarse, the serpent under the flower, the poor cat in the adage, the owl that shrieked, his sentinel the wolf, a falcon hawked at and killed by a mousing owl, Duncan's horses eating each other, Hounds and greyhounds, mongrels, spaniels, curs, shuffs, water rugs and demi-wolves, the crow making wing to the rookie wood, the rugged Russian bear, the hurricane tiger, the brindled cat, the hedge pig, the toad, the fenny snake, the newt, the frog, the bat, the dog, adder, blind worm, lizard and howlet, the dragon, wolf, the salt sea shark, the tiger and baboon, the hell kite, the bear tied to a stake, and the hellhound. This macabre menagerie, situated on the foggy heaths of Scotland, attendant on the powers of darkness and witness to acts of barbarism, gives a pretty graphic description of the psychological landscape of Macbeth. This is reinforced by the violence of the language and the imagery. They meant to bathe in reeking wounds or memorize another Golgotha. I would have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? Good things of day begin to droop and drowse, whilst night's black agents to their praise do rouse. The location is profoundly evocative and specific, it's rather hard to imagine Macbeth happening in surface paradise. Does that mean a staging of Macbeth demands an authentic representation of medieval Scotland? Not at all. The play can be located then or now, or wherever the designer's fancy takes us. But to achieve the play's full potential for an audience, 
I suggest the director and designer would do well to steep themselves in Shakespeare's imagery. Rarely does a creative team receive such help from an author. How they utilize that imagery has to be as fresh and invigorating as the text itself. A big ask, but it can be done. An inspired director or designer can shake us out of our comfort zone and make us see the play afresh. Barry Kosky's King Lear for Bell Shakespeare, 1998, was bizarre, as any Barry Kosky show will be, and was crammed full of the director's personal and astonishing iconography. One resonant scene was the penultimate one at Dover, where Gloucester journeys to commit suicide. We were given no white cliffs or desert heath, but an urban bus shelter lit by a flickering neon light. It was inhabited by lost souls in daggy party costumes and outsized carnival heads, like the remnants of some Mardi Gras parade. The effect was more dismal, weird and absurd than White Cliffs could have evoked. A director and designer attempting King Lear should note that the play begins like a fairy tale. Once there was an old king who had three daughters, one was good and two were wicked. Lear's description of his kingdom articulates this fairy tale vision. With shadowy forests and with champagnes riched, with plenteous rivers and wide skirted meads, the vines of France and milk of Burgundy. Unless the production embraces this demi paradise, there is no significance in the collapse into dystopian horror. Lear's wild ravings on a desert heath are at the centre of a cyclone and nowhere in Shakespeare is there greater synchronicity between the landscape and the mental state of the protagonist. Once you settle on a design that is too specific, you cut off other options. The landscape of As You Like It is the most varied and fanciful of any of the plays. It seems to exist only in the imaginations of the characters. The banished duke and his followers live there, feasting, hunting deer, and singing under the greenwood tree. As the wrestler Charles reports, they say he is already in the forest of Arden, and many merry men with him, and there they live like the old Robin Hood of England. They say many young gentlemen flock to him every day, and fleet the time carelessly as they did in the golden world. That is one key to the design, but this forest also has a lion and a gilded serpent, it has shepherds and shepherdesses, with the Greek classical names of Corin, Silvius, and Phoebe. It has characters from medieval romance, Rosalind, Orlando, Celia, and Oliver, a couple of Warwickshire rustics named William and Audrey, and a very out-of-place nonconformist vicar named Sir Oliver Martext. All of these characters mooch about the forest, doing nothing much, and never bumping into each other until they come together in the last scene. If anything, I suspect the forest is that of Shakespeare's childhood. He grew up on the skirts of the forest of Arden, which bore his mother's maiden name. There he would have played at Robin Hood, hunted lions and strangled snakes, like the infant Hercules in Love's Labour's Lost. As in a childhood game, this forest is anywhere and anything you want it to be. Like Neverland, it doesn't really exist. It's a landscape of the mind. Prospero's Island is also hard to pin down, and it's silly to try and give it a geographical location. It's so many different things to different people, 
depending on their dispositions. Caliban is its king and is ravished by its beauty. It's an island paradise. To Stefano and Trinculo, it's a den of devils and monsters. Old Gonzalo means to make the best of it and counts its blessings. But to the sour Sebastian and Antonio, the air has breath like rotten lungs or as if perfumed by a fen. The island is very much what you bring to it, another landscape of the mind. In a wider sense, the island is Prospero himself, and it's only when he has forgiven his enemies that he can leave the island and rejoin the mainstream of humanity. Then the island will dissolve and leave not a wreck behind. It sounds as if John Donne saw the tempest. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. I'm not suggesting that the only way to stage Shakespeare is on an empty space like the globe, but in recent years there has been a significant rediscovery of the virtues of the empty space, from Ontario to Chichester, to the London Globe, the two RSC theatres in Stratford, and scores of others throughout the world. If we hope to capture the full impact of Shakespeare's plays, we must remember that his greatest gift is imagination. Expressed in priceless language, it enkindles our own imaginations and suffuses us with pleasure like that of a small child hearing a fairy story. Any theatrical tactic that can transmit that sense of wonder is to be applauded. If it distracts or gets in the way, it's merely clutter. The great director Peter Brook in his seminal work of 1968, The Empty Space, puts it thus, It is up to us to capture the audience's attention and compel its belief. To do so, we must prove there will be no trickery, nothing hidden. We must open our empty hands and show them that there really is nothing up our sleeves. Only then can we begin. In this series of talks, I have sought to demonstrate that Shakespeare, one of the cornerstones of our culture, is not just the universal poet and entertainer, but a significant philosopher and social commentator as well. One who grapples with the existential and ethical questions that still challenge us today. And one who encourages us to imagine a better and fairer world of responsible, compassionate leadership, family harmony, love of nature, and empathy with our fellow human beings. By engaging deeply with him, we come to a better understanding of ourselves and our potential to be greater than we are. In the words of Ophelia, Lord, we know what we are, but know not what we may be. Some poignant words indeed from John Bell and the wordsmith himself, William Shakespeare. Throughout this Boyer Lecture Series, Shakespeare, Soul of the Age, you can listen or catch up on all four lectures via the ABC Listen app or visit the Boyer Lectures on the ABC Radio National website. Thank you very much indeed to John Bell for his ideas, his words and his passion. I'm Geraldine Doog and thank you all for listening.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.